Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we talk about the 2025 Africa Cup of Nations being taken away from Guinea, and we ask which countries can handle a 24-team tournament. Also, we look at footballers' unions in Africa, as only 11 countries on the continent have unions, which have helped many players. Kenya is the only、uh, players' union affiliated to FIFPRO in East and Central Africa, so I think,、uh, as such, we mirror. Uh, the rest want to be like us. That's coming up later. Lots on the English Premier League too, as we look at Arsenal's title chances, and we find out more about the new Brighton manager Roberto De Zerbi. But first, the Confederation of African Football will restart the bidding process for the 2025 Africa Cup of Nations after stripping Guinea of the right to host the competition. And Morocco are already seen as the front runners to take over.、Uh, the CAF president Patrice Motsepe announced that the 2014 tournament will be taken away from Guinea because of a lack of infrastructure and facilities. Uh, well, several issues here, Ida. Certainly not a surprise that Guinea can't handle this 2014 format.、Uh, so, how many countries in Africa are capable, and is it good for Morocco to end up hosting so many tournaments? They had the Women's Africa Cup of Nations this year. They'll host that tournament again in 2024, and also hosted the Chan recently too. No, it's not, Steve. It's not good for the game, and it's not good for the rest of Africa. Monopoly in any one thing never turns out to be the best, and I know that Morocco can argue that they've invested into growing their game and infrastructure, and as such are deserving. You know, if they can, then why can't everyone else? Sort of attitude. But look, we know it's never that easy. CAF has, in the past, lauded Morocco's state of infrastructure, and it's widely known. That the country is in very good books with the continental body, so good that a recent headline from a major media house actually caught my eye. It said, "Morocco to bid for the Afghan," and put the words "to bid" in quotes as a mockery. You see <laughs> that it's pretty much obvious that the country will get to host the Afghan, but. Look, there are countries other than Morocco that are being touted. Now, whether that will be a reality is an entirely different thing. South Africa hosted the World Cup, so one would expect or assume even that they can host a 24-team Afghan. The only thing is, what's the state of that infrastructure from 12 years ago? Because they haven't really hosted anything too major since. There's Algeria, there's Egypt, and some have even been talking of a Nigeria-Benin collaboration. Though I don't know about that. Either way, Steve, this 2014 format is taxing, and we might end up seeing co-hosting as the way of the future. I mean, it's been done before. The 2000 edition was hosted by Ghana and Nigeria.
2012 was Equatorial Guinea and Gabon. And even on a global scale, the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup will be a co-host effort, as will the 2026 World Cup with 48 teams up from 32. What's needed for a 2014 Afghan, Steve, goes much deeper than just six CAF-approved stadiums. Of those six, two should have a minimum 40,000 sitting capacity, two with 20,000 minimum, and another two with 15,000. I mean, how many African countries can handle that? Look at Guinea, they had almost 10 years to prepare for this and still weren't ready. Remember, they were to host the 2023 edition, but were then given the 2025 one. So, look, granted, the situation has been very different compared to many countries. I mean, the country just went through a coup d'etat last year, so security is also quite questionable. But a new organizing committee was established, but it just wasn't enough. When the expansion was announced years ago, CAF said that the increase to 24 teams would triple its income, you know, through broadcast and marketing deals. But this expansion, Steve, also means increased demands, not just on Stadia, but on everything else. You know, we're talking hotels, transport, media infrastructure. It's an entire domino effect. We do have to remember, though, that while Morocco has certainly hosted its fair share of continental competitions recently, Steve, the last time the country hosted the Afghan was actually in 1988, back when it was an eight-team tournament, meaning if it does win this bid, then the Nation Cup returns to Morocco after 37 years. Oh, wow. So uh, overdue in that sense, then. Uh, Thanks, Aida. Uh, Meanwhile, the draw has been made for the 2022 African Nations Championship, which takes place in January and February next year in Algeria. Uh, This is the tournament for the home base players only. In Group A, the host Algeria will be up against 2014 winners Libya, Ethiopia and Mozambique. Group B has two-time champions DR Congo, Uganda, Ivory Coast and Senegal. Group C has the defending champions Morocco, Sudan, Madagascar and Ghana. Uh, Group D and E have three teams each, so in Group D there's Mali, Angola and Mauritania and Group E has Cameroon, Congo and Niger. So kicking off early next year, the 2022 African Nations Championship. Well, next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, show brought to you by Passion for Sport, to Players Unions. Now, last weekend, I was at Victoria Falls here in Zimbabwe for a FIFA Pro Africa conference. Uh, FIFA Pro is the global organization that represents footballers and sets up footballers' unions. I was one of the guest speakers there and had a great time. We had Players Union representatives from Zimbabwe, South Africa, Egypt, DR Congo, Kenya, Morocco, Botswana, Cameroon, Ghana and Zambia. Uh, Now globally 66 countries have footballers unions. In Africa 11 countries have footballers unions. Well Terry Ouko is a former Kenya women's national team player. She was in the squad that qualified for the 2016 women's AFCON. She's now head of communications at the Kenyan Players Union and a board member of FIFA Pro Africa. Kenya is the only uh, players union affiliated to FIFA Pro in East and Central Africa. So I think uh, as such we mirror 
uh, the rest want to be like us because they see how we champion for the rights of players and it's even better that now uh, most of the players in the neighboring countries also come to us ask for advice during the wafcon we were able to talk to teams that were present there like burundi senegal so many players from other countries now want to know how fifa works and how they can join the union so that, i think that's a good step being that we were there first and now we can show them the way and what are some of the issues that uh you are busy with in the players union uh, in Kenya most of the issues have been around contracts because most players um, are not aware that if your contract is not honored or if the club does not pay you then you can leave the club as a free agent after three months so most of the players have been uh, suffering because of lack of knowledge so what we are doing right now is just player education and trying to sensitize them on how contracts work you are not a slave to a club just because you signed a contract and you're not being paid you can leave you can terminate your contract and after 14 days if they don't respond you're free to go so such like information is lacking players do not know their rights so for us it's just about advocacy and um, player education in order for them to know the integrities their rights what is expected of them when they are in the club how they should respect the code of conduct and all stuff like that and what are some of your other notable achievements uh, what we've achieved so far is uh, the championing for mat- the maternity policy the one that has uh, the recently um, unveiled maternity policy by fifa and fifa and also we advocate mainly uh, for menstrual health hygiene because it's also an area that footballers female footballers especially go through but they do not really speak out so apart from that we are also vocal on the cases of abuse we we've partnered with an organization crew that is very supportive in terms of the judicial system when the players are violated sexually be it uh, physically because some of them if it's physical violence they don't look at it as violence really until it's sexual violence but now we've educated them on different forms of violence and could you highlight some of the things that a footballers union in africa can't do because uh, some football fans think that uh, a union should be looking after retired players uh, legends and so on but uh, that just doesn't work does it yeah actually it's a problem even in kenya where former footballers think that uh, the football union is responsible for um making their lives comfortable and such like stuff the grants that the football union get cannot be enough to cushion all the former footballers so what they should know is that in as much as the the footballers union can champion for their their rights and stuff like that and also help in advocating for uh, their welfare they cannot all be looked after in, in terms of maybe being given stipends or like during covid we could get requests like can you give us food portions and stuff like that it's not realistic it's not sustainable it's not the core mandate of the organization uh, what the organization does is just champion for your welfare even the current players there's only much we can do All we do is ensure your club, your employers take good care of you, but it's not like we take care of the player ourselves. 
were just like their mouthpiece. We're talking there to Terry Ouko, former Kenya national women's team player, head of communications now at the Kenya Players Union and a board member of FIFA Pro Africa. Uh, she mentioned there the FIFA maternity policy, that's of 2020, where clubs are unable now to terminate the contract of a player on the basis of their pregnancy. Well, also at this a conference at Victoria Falls, I spoke to Mohamed Margheb. He's the administrative director for Egypt's Players Union, which started back in 2001. He also says that they help a lot with issues over player contracts. There is a lot of cancellation from uh, the club side, you know, without telling the player that, uh, you know, is going to just like the you know, the contract is going to be terminated. So we have so many problems, you know, this year especially because the clubs don't have uh, enough money to pay the the salary of the player. So um, we asked the FIFA. We just talked to the FIFA, CAV. We negotiated about you know so many contracts and just like get the money from the club to you know the players we've done so many operations throughout the year more than a hundred and just like we did two camps this year which is you know uh, so different because we just like do camp every year so this year is totally different uh, and just like the camp uh, we're gonna ask the player who do, uh, like who don't have you know uh, a club to to come to just a train and ju- then j- promote them to the clubs and everything is free because EPFA is just a non-profit, non-profit organization. And we, we hope to just expand in other countries such as Sudan. I'm pushing, you know, uh, Sudanese players to come to Egypt. Why not just like open a new branch on a new union there in the Sudan? So it would be grateful. So that's Mohamed Margheb, the Administrative Director for Egypt's Players' Union. So some of the projects that footballers' unions in Africa have been involved in include camps and trials for out-of-contract players to help them to find clubs. There's HIV awareness, uh, player awards, mental health programs as well. Um, so Ida, a bit surprising may be that only 11 African countries have footballers' unions. Well, it's important to note that FIFA Pro Africa is still a relatively new baby, <laughs> if you will. Uh, founded in 2009 in Johannesburg, so just about 13 years old, Steve. FIFA Pro itself was founded in 1965, so you can't see that there's a big head start. Now, with that said, FIFA Pro Africa does emphasize the importance of going for quality over quantity. So, in essence, They'd rather have 11 members that tick the criteria as opposed to, say, 30 who don't, you know. And uh, diversity is also something slowly starting to take shape in the organization. Terry there is the second woman on the governing body of Fifth Pro Africa alongside Khadija Timera. But there is a lot to be done for player welfare, Steve. Club licensing now being taken seriously is at least just one step because clubs will be obliged to honor contracts. And that is something we've seen is a big problem in the continent, as both uh, Terry and Mo have mentioned. Glad as well that the 2020 FIFA maternity policy is also taking shape. Now, players are given three and a half months maternity leave, Steve, and they must be paid at least two thirds of their salary by their clubs. Clubs should not let their players go for getting pregnant, which is something that we have seen happen to women across different sports, even with sponsors letting them go. 
Indeed, yes, thanks Ida. So these footballers' unions are doing a lot for the causes of players around Africa. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, Stuart on the new Brighton manager. Let's go to social media now. Last week we asked, is the Harry Maguire criticism fair? Uh, Maguire is one of the most criticised players in world football at the moment, uh, both by Manchester United fans and by England fans. He was dropped from the United team and had a Nations League shocker against Germany recently. Now, Maguire was the world's most expensive defender when he joined United in 2018. So we asked, is the criticism of him fair, and should he be in England's World Cup team? We start in Nigeria with prospect Victor Nya Jr., who says he hasn't lived up to expectations since his arrival from Leicester. A lot of blunders have been committed by a player who cost £80 million. Uh, Meek Mill in Sierra Leone says, I want Maguire to be dropped from the England squad ahead of the World Cup. And King Ham in Kenya says he will cost his England teammates. Then Thierry in Cameroon says, I think Harry Maguire deserves all the criticism he's getting from the media. His performance says it all. For example, his last game for England, which was against Germany, uh, there were two goals conceded by England which were his fault. And that was very clear to see, says Thierry. The same with Manchester United. How do you explain that in the first two games of the season, United conceded six goals with his presence at the back? In the next four in his absence, they conceded two and recorded four victories. The criticism he gets is just what he deserves, says Thierry. And while many others had harsh words for Maguire, a lot of people were very sympathetic. A fresh Godwin in Nigeria says this guy must be going through a lot of emotional and psychological trauma by now. A nice in Cameroon says he just needs some time to come back to his best. He's not the only player out of form. And Ustaz Mubarak Lampard in Ghana says Maguire needs encouragement now. I feel very sad for his bad performance these days, but uh, we shouldn't use his poor performance now to judge him because he wasn't bad when he arrived at Manchester United. Anointed in Malawi says people expect much from Harry, thereby putting more pressure on him. All in all, Harry is a good defender, says Anointed. And in the Gambia, Belong Baji says despite those costly errors, he's not an average player. Those errors were not intentional. I think he should be given a place in the England World Cup squad. Also, Man United should rethink their decision to drop him and give him more playing time, says Belong. Mr. Colley in the Gambia says he was one of my favourites when he played for Leicester, but his performance has dropped at Manchester United. He did well at the Euros last year. Gareth Southgate, the England manager, might still select him for the World Cup, says Mr. Colley. Uh, Mr. Saurer in Botswana says he's the best in the back line, but the errors he makes leads fans to criticise him, but he is one of the best defenders. And Ola Jire Tunde in Nigeria says, Harry isn't a flop. In fact, he's the only one in the Manchester United squad last season with the courage when others left him humiliated. I think he needs the help of a psychologist to help to revive his career. Maguire tries to stop strikers when others stay out and they leave him to take the blame, says Ola Jire. And finally, Manfred Altamira Hausiku in Namibia says what people are doing to him is just too much. We must know that no one is perfect. His form isn't the best at the moment, but he will change with time, says Manfred. 
Well, thanks so much for all of those comments. Always really great to hear from you. This week we're asking, can Thomas Partey help the Gunners to win the title? Uh, the Ghana midfielder scored a great goal for Arsenal last weekend in the win over Tottenham that keeps the Gunners on top of the table. Uh, Partey's been impressing since coming back from injury. So how good do you think he is? And can he maybe help Arsenal to win the league? You can post a comment on our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, or you can send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Can Thomas Partey help the Gunners to win the title? Well, now let's go to our European football expert, Stuart Weir in the UK. It's Arsenal-Liverpool, the big game this weekend. That's on Sunday. And uh, last weekend, Arsenal dominated the North London derby. Uh, they remain on top. Um, so, Stuart, how good are Arsenal? And uh, did we overestimate Tottenham, maybe? Well, an emphatic 3-1 win over Tottenham, albeit helped by Emerson Royale of Tottenham getting a red card after an hour. But... Arsenal's three goals were scored by Thomas Partey, Gabriel Jesus and Granit Xhaka. And there's a story behind each of them. The Ghanaian, Thomas Partey, who has frankly sometimes struggled to fit into the Arsenal team, scored with as sweet a strike as you're ever likely to see. But incidentally, Steve, Partey has had 56 previous shots from outside the box for Arsenal without scoring. So he was due one. And then what about uh, Jesus, struggling for game time at Manchester City, but he's already scored five goals in Arsenal's eight league games. And now, Granit Xhaka, do you remember two or three years ago, he was substituted, he took his shirt off and threw it at Mikel Arteta? Well, Arteta stuck with him and seems to have transformed him into a really valuable player. And with seven wins out of eight, Arsenal, as you say, are at home to Liverpool on Sunday. And what a good time to be playing Liverpool, who have got ten points from seven games, their worst start since 2014. Tottenham's first defeat of the season, five wins and two draws in the league. Some people were critical of Antonio Conte's approach to the game, feeling that he was too cautious. But to be fair, Tottenham remained third in the league table and I think their fans would be happy if they stayed there. And Harry Kane scored a penalty against Arsenal. That's the seventh time he scored a penalty against Arsenal. And the last player to do that, Frank Hoodspeth in 1926. Manchester City simply blew Manchester United away, leading 4-0 before half-time and stretching the lead to 6-1 before two late United goals gave them a more flattering result of 6-3. But a strange statistic was that City had 10 shots on target and United 8, the difference being that City were just that bit more clinical with their chances. What more can we say about Erling Haaland? I really think he can claim to be the best player in the world at the moment. You know, I speculated at the beginning of the season how quickly City would adjust to a change of formation, playing with an out-and-out striker for the first time. Well, Haaland's statistics speak for themselves. He scored in eight consecutive Premier League games. He has scored 14 in eight league games. And incidentally, 14 that he scored is more than 14 Premier League clubs have managed from all their players. Haaland has scored three hat-tricks in eight games. 
the next quickest to three hat-tricks in the Premier League was Michael Owen, who needed 48 games. Haaland had eight. For me, the biggest mystery of Manchester United is signing an experienced Brazilian international, multiple Champions League winner, Casemiro, a defensive midfield player, and then not picking him. He has yet to start a game, and in total he's played 86 minutes in four substitute appearances. He's a player who sits in front of the back four, and my goodness, don't Manchester United need someone to sit in front of the back four, tackle and win the ball? Just what they needed certainly against a rampant city, but Casemiro doesn't win the ball a lot if he's sitting on the bench. Yeah, indeed, and Manchester City really dominant in that game. Two more goals for Haaland in the Champions League midweek against FC Copenhagen as well. Um, and Stuart, uh, what about Brighton uh, with manager Graham Potter going to Chelsea? Roberto De Zerbi is the new boss at Brighton, starting with a 3-3 draw away to Liverpool. Uh, tell us more about the new manager. Well, he's a 43-year-old Italian who played professionally in Italy for 11 years. He had one season with Napoli, but mainly played in the lower divisions, ending his career in Romania. As a manager, he's worked for seven years in Italy, including three years with Sassoulo, twice finishing eighth in Serie A. And as Sassoulo is a small club, finishing eighth twice was a great performance, arguably overachieving. Last season, he was manager of Shakhtar Donetsk in Ukraine, taking them to the top of the table before the season had to be abandoned because of the Russian invasion. I have nothing negative to say about him, but he did seem a strange choice, having neither played nor managed in England before. Apparently, he knows Pep Guardiola and sought his advice, and he's quoted as saying, Pep told me good things about Brighton. And he told me that if I needed any help, he'd be happy to help me, except when they were playing Manchester City. One potential problem is language. The Italian needed to use an interpreter for his initial news conference as Brighton manager, and that could prove a challenge when trying to get his message across to the new players. But he has some experience of that in Ukraine. At Schachter, I'm told that he had two interpreters, one for Italian and Ukrainian, for the Ukrainian players, and one for Italian to Portuguese for the Brazilian players. And Brighton, incidentally, have Spanish, Polish, Dutch, French, Japanese and German-speaking players. So he may have his work cut out. Well, he almost started with a win away to Liverpool, with Brighton leading 2-0 before having to settle for the draw. But that keeps Brighton in fourth in the table. And their next game is at home to Tottenham. That'll be an interesting one. Yeah, it will. And, uh, Stuart, the sackings continue. The latest manager to be fired, uh, Bruno Laghi, at Wolves. Yeah, when Wolves lost to West Ham last weekend, they slipped into the bottom three, and that was enough for the club to dispense with Bruno Laghi. The 46-year-old Portuguese manager had been in charge for just one season and the eight games of this season. Last season, Wolves finished 10th, which I think was quite respectable, but this season, they've only won once in eight games. Lackey was appointed when Wolves, rather surprisingly, last summer, parted company with Nuno. Nuno had been there for four years, taking them into the Premier League and finished 7th, 7th and 13th. Um... Steve, I hope the new manager, whoever he is, can speak Portuguese, as eight of the team which played against West Ham on Saturday are Portuguese. 
I just think it's such a strange situation to have two Portuguese managers for five years who between them have assembled a largely Portuguese squad and then suddenly you need to appoint a new manager. We talked last week about the appointment of Slavin Bilic at Watford. Well, in his first game, Watford beat Stoke 4-0, helped by three African goals. Senegalese Ismela Saar, the Ivorian Vakun Bayo, and Ken Sema. Well, he's Swedish, but his parents are Congolese, so I'm going to count him. So Billage was very thankful to his Africans in that game. But then, midweek, they lost at home to Swansea City, although Saar did score again. Graham Potter had a long wait for his first game in charge of Chelsea, and they won, but only just. Crystal Palace took the lead, but then Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang marked his return to the Premier League with a goal. The winner came from Conor Gallagher, who spent last season on loan at Crystal Palace. And the goal came in the 90th minute. But many people regard Chelsea as a bit unlucky, as the Chelsea captain Thiago Silva deliberately handled the ball to stop a Palace goal-scoring opportunity and only got a yellow card. Bit of controversy there. Indeed, and uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang scoring again midweek in the Champions League. Promising start for him at Chelsea. Well, thanks a lot, Stuart. Uh, that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.